Hello everyone, hello listeners, hello followers. This is Mentally Sound's Life in Lockdown podcast series. We're at episode 22. Um, thank you for joining us. My name is Ricky Thamen. Uh, if you're listening to us on Spice FM, it's 98.8 FM. Um, we welcome your listenership. Um, and just by the way, um, that is on the Tuesday, the new time of 1pm now. And if you're listening on our social media platform, we welcome you as well. So as I say, yes, uh, schedule change, really important, because um, as Spice FM are welcoming uh, their presenters back to the studio, you know, safety, you know, social distancing and uh, all the necessarily safety measures included. Um, so there's going to be ongoing schedule changes for, but at the moment, men- Mentally Sound is at 1pm on Tuesday afternoon. If you listen on our social media platforms, just a reminder, uh, on Twitter, we're at underscore Mentally Sound, all on word. On Facebook, we're Mentally Sound Radio Show. And on Instagram, we're Mentally Sound Radio. Brilliant. So it's our 22nd show. Um, Nikki can't be with us. She'll be on for next week's show. Um, We're going to do a full hour with her. Um, And just a quick heads up as well. We want to thank uh, the Recovery College and Mental Health Northeast for their continued support. So I have a a really special guest for this this particular episode. Um, Her name is Emma Lowell Buck. She's be she's a member of parliament for South Shields. I think since two thousand thirteen, you won a by election. Yeah, brilliant. I did. Yeah, yeah. So yes, and uh, I, she she is uh, very candid about um, uh, social issues such as mental health, and I thought she'd be a brilliant guest for this. We'll also be talking about dyspraxia, um, because it's a condition that not many of us will will know about. But this is something that's close to Emma's heart, as she has lived experience of this. So we'll get to know about that. So first of all, um, hello Emma, how are you doing? I'm lovely to be here and thank you for referring to me as your special guest. I don't feel particularly special oh, after no, a week well. at Westminster, but thank you. <laughs> well, glad. all our guests are special and uh, given given you just hopped off a train, you're extra, extra special for doing that. So um, thank you for joining us. We've been wanting to get you on the show for ages and ages. So I'm just, I'm just, um, I'm just, um, um, you know, excited that we've finally got you. Um so as I as we ask all our guests, um, how are you doing on a mental health perspective? This has been a chaotic year for all of us. How's it how's it impacted you on a personal level? I mean, I think because I've been, you know, I've been very very lucky to mm. have not come down with coronavirus or mm. caught caught the virus in any way. So I've been able to continue to work every day. Mm. So you know, through, through lockdown, I was sat with a laptop working, and a lot of my job is talking to people anyway. So I was still having lots of interaction with people on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So it probably didn't affect me in the way that it affected other people. Where yeah. perhaps if your job, even if you are working from home, and your job doesn't involve talking to other people, it can be quite isolating. Yeah. But I never really got that, and because I was, you know, fit and healthy. I was working every Friday doing shifts at our local food banks and doing food mm-hmm. deliveries. So I was still out and about and very much able to be part of the community, which yeah. you know I was really thankful for. But I understood that that wasn't the case for a hell of a lot of people. And I, I was really lucky to be mm. in that position. So would you say on a personal level that going out there to the food banks and, and seeing people on a sort of a, particularly sort of helping out those who are struggling, you know, your constituents... You couldn't sit. You couldn't sit at home feeling idle about it. You had to go out there and do something. I mean, I think it was it was more heartbreaking than anything because the demand on the food banks has always been high, yeah. but throughout the pandemic, it has just rocketed, and mm-hmm. the shelves were depleted. The, there was people ringing up, desperate for food parcels, unable to get them. And you know, whilst our food banks are run brilliantly, they can only mm-hmm. work with what they have. And yeah. if the food supplies aren't there, you know, at the start when people were going out and just pulling everything off the supermarket shelves and mm-hmm. that was impacting on them and then when there was yeah. limits put on what you could actually buy yeah. they were struggling because they buy in bulk so mm-hmm. there was all these different kinds of issues and I think for me it was just heartbreaking seeing that massive spike in poverty mm-hmm. and the massive need for people in the area to get mm-hmm. help and then obviously even though you know I said I was at home and you know I was working and still having contact with people every single person I spoke to were either deeply distressed worried or dealing with really serious issues mm-hmm. and that to be honest hasn't subsided we're now yeah. seeing new issues coming forward but still serious issues and serious worries we had you know outbreaks in some care homes where mm-hmm. a lot of people lost elderly relatives so 
and I think for me it was the inability to bounce off the rest of my team Mm -hmm. so sometimes when you're dealing with things like that you're at least every Friday when I'm back Mm -hmm. in the constituency I'd be in the office and through the week I'd be in London and I'd have my researcher there with us and just everybody needs that that kind of let up and just something else someone else to have Mm -hmm. contact with and talk mm. about and just share their experiences of the day with so yeah. that that was quite hard in those respects but like I say you know I feel like I, I've been quite lucky you know um because anyone can get this anyone can get this virus it's out there isn't it and mm. I've been really lucky that I haven't got it and I've been able to continue to work yeah and, and, and do you know the job that I'm on to do I mean I, I'm in agreement with you I, I, I feel quite lucky and it hasn't impacted me really directly but you know, like doing these podcasts, hoping that we could um, give our listeners some sort of reassurance and advice and tips about, you know, people who are out there to help us and this sort of thing. So we've had like, um, we've had the food banks on our show and we've had the mutual aid groups who've gone out and yeah. done done some things. But given that, I mean, I know South Shields quite well, you know, my uncle used to have a shop on, Fre- on Frederick Street back in the 1980s. Did he? he did, yeah. Oh. Yeah. What was it called? Can you remember? It was, it was called um, Rita Fashions. Does that ring a bell? All right. It was yeah. all I can know. It was opposite a news. It was opposite a news agent, and there was a pet shop down on the corner. But it was like I'm from too young, too young. <laughs> <laughs> I think it ran from about 1984 <laughs> to 1989 or something like that. But uh, right. Oh, yeah. wow. So you're familiar with the patch then? Yeah, really familiar. Yeah. And oh, the other thing I know about it, as you well know as well, is that, um, I mean, I'm from, you know, the West End of Newcastle. So considering yeah. considering the kind of, you know, we've had a d- decade of austerity cuts and so forth. We've had, you know, community services that have been cut down to the bone. So were you well aware at the beginning of lockdown that there was going to be this sort of spike in 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 you know people in absolute desperation needing help that kind of when their when their help was taken away from them in the first place well yeah and it was it was just an absolute tsunami in my office because Mm. as well i mean it should come as no surprise if people have heard the way you know the questions i've asked and the things i've raised in parliament that i i don't think this government have handled this very well Mm. and every single time they made an announcement they had no cognizance of that those announcements were impacting on people's daily lives impacting Mm. on people's anxiety and people were getting worried about what to do Mm. and now any responsible government what the normal standard practice is you make an announcement And within minutes of that announcement being made, there's guidance out there and it's clear and people can understand it. Me and my team, I mean, my my team and me are still thinking now we get hundreds of calls every single week, Mm -hmm. messages all weekend, emails, people just not understanding. Because by and large, you know, people people are decent and they want to play by the rules and they want to do things properly. Mm -hmm. But it's really hard when those who are making the rules aren't following them themselves. And then... They're not even putting out what it means exactly to people. So yeah. people are ringing me, they're ringing the local authority, and they're, mm. they're still no further forward because mm. we don't know because we're relying on the government to release it. Mm. You've been outspoken on on issues of care and, and child poverty and, and particularly children in care, I was reading before online. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, what, what has been the impact on, on, on that particular area within South Shields, um, particularly... Like with you mentioned, care homes and children in care, has it been quite desperate, has it, I'm assuming? People with COVID were allowed to be discharged from hospital into care homes. The impact that has had on not just the tragic loss of lives, Mm -hmm. but also their relatives and the staff who work in those Mm -hmm. homes who were powerless to stop this, Mm -hmm. who were unable because they didn't have the right equipment Mm -hmm. to, you know, help, help some of the people who, you know, I think people don't understand that if you work in a care home, mm-hmm. it's not just that the people, the residents who you're looking after, you don't just know them for a few months. They know them for years. Sometimes yeah. they're, they're part of their family almost. Yeah. And all those staff had to sit and watch those people take their last breaths, knowing mm-hmm. that the government made this decision mm-hmm. and that the government wouldn't let them back in the hospital and put them on ventilators because they were saying there wasn't enough or that they had to stay where they were. Mm. Now, that's really heartbreaking. There's been mm. over 15,000 deaths in care homes. Yeah. And both Matt Hancock and the Prime Minister did admit to me from the dispatch box that they take full responsibility for those deaths. Mm. Now, why, where's the public outcry? Yeah. We've got people in government who are taking full responsibility mm. for thousands and thousands of deaths, some of which could have been avoided. Yeah. 
Um, just on that, um, um, because the comparisons have been made about this situation we're currently at is it, is very much like a war wartime footing. Um, they made comparisons like we've not we've not had this sort of scenario since wartime. So, given that you're a member of the the opposition. Do you feel it best place to be part of an opposition where it constantly scrutinised or would you rather that we kind of fought this all together as what the government had been trying to sort of advocate? Or do you think do you think by by doing the scrutiny you kind of steer things towards doing the right thing, if you get my meaning? I mean, to be honest, the government say these things. They say mm. let's work together, let's, you know, cooperate and they try and make war analogies, but this isn't a war. This is a pandemic, and pandemics are very different to wars. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's all this kind of macho talk, and, and then they'll say, oh, we want to work with you. But then when you make suggestions, they're like, no, you're opposition, we're not interested. Yeah. And I think the only times we are managed to affect change is mm -hmm. by scrutiny and by keeping them under pressure in the chamber. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously that was shut down for a very long time as well, and it was sure. almost impossible. Do you think? Really do you think there's me. often a lot being talked about the north-south divide? Do you think that? Mm -hmm. Do you think COVID has exposed this divide even more? So, do you feel that northern voices are kind of feeling a bit more isolated now with everything? Well, going I on? think it's 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 in a, it, anything anything major that hits a country. If there's already deep inequalities there, those inequalities will widen all the more, won't yeah, it? Because yeah. you don't have access to the things that people who've got wealth have access to. Mm. You know, it's just as simple as that. You know, people people need to go to work. You know, people in my constituency can't just decide, oh, well, I'll, you know, I'll stay at home in my mansion today and I'll yeah. be looked after. They have to go to work. Mm, yeah. And the government are putting them in an impossible situation, saying, mm -hmm. you know, you have to self-isolate. Mm -hmm. And then their employers are saying, well, we're not going to pay you. You know, so there's all this kind of stuff going on and people yeah. are just marginalized and in areas like mine in south shields we rely really heavily on the hospitality industry mm -hmm. we're a seaside tourist town yeah. and we are getting absolutely bad in this 10 p.m curfew that they've introduced there mm -hmm. is no scientific evidence for it whatsoever mm -hmm. you know the government the prime minister's been asked um i asked nadine doris the um health minister one of the health ministers about it yeah. nobody can see exactly where the scientific evidence is to introduce it it's just an arbitrary time scale and it's causing loads of my businesses to close their doors forever mm -hmm. they were just getting back on their feet they were saying okay well we missed easter we missed most of the summer mm -hmm. we can reopen again now and they were all being really really sensible and their businesses were covid secure and then they've introduced this 10 p.m curfew and a lot of them are saying to me that'll be it mm -hmm. we'll never open again now so just on that, Emma, what would because people have been there's been rumours of the you know a possible second national lockdown happening. What just you know what would that be like for your constituents in South Shields? What would that mean, and what what, what would the impact be, considering the year we've had already? Well, I think it would be, you know, I think economically it would destroy our town. We were already yeah. struggling before this. Um, this is going to turn us into a ghost town and I'm really frightened and worried. Yeah. Um, I have wrote to the government and asked them to release um, some dormant assets that are lying in bank in banks yeah. for coastal communities like mine mm -hmm. to help us try and recover. Um but I think also it's the it's the human impact, it's you know, the impact on people's yeah. people's mental health mm. and it yeah, I just think the government aren't looking at what other options are out there. Mm -hmm. There has to be a way. We're going to be stuck with this until there's a vaccine. So repeated lockdowns and then lifting them and then putting them back in place again mm. isn't doing anything to help. And it's mm. proven that it's not given the right results because mm -hmm. they need to be backed up with clear messaging. Yeah. Any lockdown should have came in earlier to begin with, right at the start of the year. Mm. But, you know, that didn't happen. And then... Lockdowns now, unless they're matched by a robust, you know, test, track and trace and, mm -hmm. you know, come concrete, clear messaging, then it's not going to work again either. And the government needs to find a way of managing the virus, protecting mm -hmm. the most vulnerable without completely shutting society yeah. down. Mm -hmm. Because if they keep doing that, it's going to be, it's already a mental health crisis and it's going yeah. to destroy local Local yeah. economies and communities. So South Shield, as everyone knows, is a very um, uh, you know it, it's a seaside community. Um, people know that seaside communities often have a lot of the older generations living out there. So I'm imagining then that 
issues like loneliness and and isolation are quite prevalent and uh, another lockdown or even even like with the restrictions that we have now the heightened restrictions we have in 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 the northeast um so with that in mind i mean how do you see a way out of this i mean is there are you kind of like wanting some sort of task force for 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 seaside communities like yourselves along with other mps have you kind of like you know, banded together to to seek a way out from this or is it still very oh, much yeah. a see what we'll see what happens sort of thing I mean, the, the coastal communities, I've asked for a fund to be released from Dorman Bank assets for yeah. coastal communities, and a lot of colleagues who are from coastal areas signed that letter. Is that cross-party, is it? Yeah, it was cross-party. Right, okay. um, I'm still waiting for a response, because that's another thing at the minute. Um, government ministers and secretaries of state just don't respond to letters anymore. Mm. They answer questions with just glib statements, and they don't respond to correspondence either. So mm. we're still waiting for a response from that. Um, yeah. I was just reading in the news today as well, it was saying that about 10 million British people are you know, so struggling and needing mental health support right now. Yeah. So that is only going to rise the more we keep locking down. And, and my worry is that, especially with older populations, there's still yeah. that stigma there, isn't there, about yeah. mental health. There's mm. still that kind of not wanting to admit that they need a bit extra support. And, you know, people in Shields were, were lush, but were, they were really proud as well. And yeah. that older generation is incredibly proud. And they don't ask for help. Mm. So, you know, that, that worries me that you've got perhaps elderly people stuck at home, really isolated, mm. not really knowing where to go for help and also not wanting to ask for it because they feel there's still a stigma attached. Mm. And also, you know, when, when you're in a, when you're in an area where it's not entirely, you know, there's, there's not that many people who have like my dad, my dad doesn't have a mobile phone. Mm-hmm. or an ipad or anything so you know if he was if he didn't have me mom he'd be on his own and he'd literally just have the telly and that would be it so, yeah i mean know, a lot a lot was made yeah. out of this you know the download the the latest um you know nhs app for and i, I was just mm-hmm. thinking about those who aren't tech savvy particularly older generations That's what, what, I mean. what, what are they yeah. going to rely on you know um, yeah, they don't have the technology or if they, they don't know how to use it. Um, mm. I mean, some people have, you know, they've learned through the lockdown, but yeah. but there's others who won't, who won't be able to. Mm-hmm. Um, Something else, uh, Emma, that you've been uh, passionate and gone involved with was the um, Save the South Tyneside the Hospital campaign and particularly yeah. aspects around the hospices and, and palliative care. I was actually at one of the rallies, I think going back a couple of years, where you mm-hmm. spoke down at Newcastle City Centre. So I was just curious to know what the latest is on that campaign and how things are. Um, we we are currently appealing on the outcome of the court case because we, we went to court to try and get some of yeah. those services returned. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been granted appeal, so it's just a case of, of waiting for that appeal to go through. Mm-hmm. But then in the interim, the Clinical Commissioning Group have also made a decision that our hospice in South Tyneside won't be reopening either, right. in that instead we're just going to have four beds on the hospital grounds as part of our palliative care hospice. Wow. So um, I think, you know, what, what's happening throughout the pandemic as well is organisations and, and various, you know, unscrupulous employers are mm. using it as an excuse to either get away with doing things they wouldn't normally get away with or yeah. they are treating their workforce terribly. So we've seen what British Airways and British Gas are doing to their workforces, you know, the fire and rehire, the fire and rehire stuff. Mm. So it, it's just... It's just I feel like deeply sad a lot of the time because everywhere I turn, I feel like there's just... I mean, does this inevitably mean that there's going to be a lot more outsourcing? Um, the kind of scrutiny isn't going to be there to, you know, um, particularly when people are let down, as you say, with the very good people and, and South Shields. I mean, are we talking about the inevitable sort of more and more biting into the private privatisation of our health service? Well, I mean, if, if you know... Um, if you heard me speak at the monument that day, I've always thought the end game for the Tories was to completely privatise mm. the NHS and do it by stealth bit by bit. Yeah. They wouldn't have the guts to come out and just do it 
So what they're doing instead is they're doing it bit by bit. They're outsourcing this bit there and they're creating the conditions all the time for it mm. to be right for takeover. Yeah. And then there's help seeing a local areas. You have to save billions of pounds knowing that that's impossible. So then hospitals mm. are shutting and eventually you've got no, you know, you've got no hospitals left. So the private sector is the only one who can take it over. Yeah. And you've seen what they've done through the pandemic. They're awarding contracts, putting mm. them in the NHS's name when they're not in, giving them to their mates because they know people are trying to grapple with just surviving each day or holding on to their jobs attention's off what they're doing and also as well you know um the, the one thing we will we'll remember from this year as well is the clap for carers and key workers but mm-hmm. it's all very well clapping but you know when it comes to actually giving those very th- those very mm-hmm. people who are out there literally saving our lives and keeping the country going you know a, a right deserved pay rise it, it just wasn't there was it and and it was just a kind of, um, well, we clapped for them and that's... And, and you know, gov- governments can always find money. They can always find money if they want to. Like mm. I say, they've found, they found millions of pounds to give to their friends to run contracts throughout the pandemic. So, you know, they, there is the money there. They can do it. That magic money tree is out there somewhere, isn't it, evidently? <laughs> so, yeah. And, you know, it just needs the political will for mm. it to be done. And we don't have the political will because... I don't know, you know, I see some of them just sitting there grinning and laughing and I think my constituents are dying, this ain't funny. Yeah. You know, there's all these people making sacrifices and working really hard to get through this and then you've got people going on like that who are supposed mm. to know better. Mm. Um, we're reaching the end, Emma, but I want to spend the last uh, last couple of minutes talking about uh, dyspraxia because um, yeah. I know it's something that you've been very vocal about, um, very candid given that you have lived experience with this. So for listeners out there who aren't sure what dyspraxia is or what it means, do you want to give them an idea of what it is and how it's impacted you on a personal basis, particularly, I guess, growing up because, you you know, you have become an MP. And when I read the sort of list of uh, uh, symptoms, if you like, or the, the, the list of um, uh, what it means, it, it's, some, it's a lot of things which meant, you know, there's certainly a lot of hoops that you've got to jump through, but you've ended up becoming an MP, so you, you've actually pulled yourself up in the bootstraps and made it. So in that whole kind of nutshell, what's what's dis, what's dyspraxia and what, what it's meant for you? I, mean, I think it's, I always find it um, difficult. It's, it's, it's a condition that's really hard to explain, yeah. and the people who have it find it even harder to explain because of the condition itself. So it's, right. it's like, but it's, it's essentially, it's a um, developmental coordination disorder. Yeah. So it, I always describe it as basically my, my brain is wired slightly differently to how other people's are. Your perception is slightly mm. different. So I might think something's really close when it's miles away. Right. Um, you struggle between like um, left and right, mm. sometimes mix words up unintentionally um, um, and just you know, most dyspraxics can't drive, you know, mm. struggle reading maps, that kind of thing. And, and just like I say, we just like think differently. We view things in a different way, everyone else. And I've always said that politics is a great place for people <laughs> like that because most people in politics all think the same. Yeah. They all kind of come from a similar background. They've all kind of yeah. moved in the same circles. And, you know, you need people who are thinking outside the box and seeing something different because otherwise mm. Parliament just looks like it did when I was a kid where they all sounded the same, they all looked the same and not a single one of them were talking about anything that mattered to me or my community. Yeah. So what was it like growing up with it especially? Did you find, you know, your school life particularly difficult with it? Because um, I imagine, I mean, everyone this, used, yeah, I imagine this condition wasn't particularly um, well well aware back then, was it? And I know that no, when I mean, reading... I bizarrely i met the um i met someone from the house of lords who was one of the first people to ever like write an academic paper about it and he was from newcastle university all right and i think he first wrote that in like 1979 so i was only born in 78 so it definitely was something that people didn't really know much about um and i think i suppose the, the the biggest impact was that in your head if you like especially because it's it's nothing that's like identifiable so it's like a hidden disability mm-hmm. so but in your head you know you're different and yeah. you know you behave different and you think differently yeah. so what I used to do quite a lot was um isolate myself and because I was so clumsy as well I was always nervous about making a fool of myself and being laughed at so I it's it's the more the the mental health and the self-esteem and the worry yeah. of thinking what is wrong with me why am I not seeing that why do I not behave the way they behave and mm-hmm. so 
it was that and I used to suffer from like chronic low self-esteem and lack yeah. of confidence so yeah. believe it or not I would never ever speak um in a crowded room I'd never put my hand up in class I'd always just be really quiet and really shy because yeah. God knows how I ended up where I am now but well I, I can relate I can relate to that because I'm the same I was uh, you know my self-esteem my shyness was heightened because of because I have PTSD, right? But yes. I never, I never got it diagnosed at an early age. It was only after I graduated. But when you got the diagnosis, did you feel a sense of relief that you knew what it was and you could explore it and you could find out about it and relate to other people who've had experience with it? Did you find it a sort of a, I, I don't know what you say, like a well, an epiphany was, of some sort? Like, um, I mean, I, I went to see in Ed Psych because I was doing my master's, so I was older like you. Um, yeah. And one of my lecturers said, there's something not quite right with you. And I said, well, I know that. <laughs> so I've always known that. And she said, no, we want you to go and see someone. Mm. So I went to see an Ed Psych and he did this report. And when I, he said, oh, you've got dyspraxia. And I was like, well, what's that? I've never heard of it before. Mm. And I read the report and I showed it to friends and family. And everyone said, that's a condition. We thought it was just you. You're just a bit quirky and a bit different. We <laughs> didn't realise it was actually something. Yeah. I said, yeah, apparently so. But then thought well I, I think I was like 28 or 29 at that point and mm. I thought well I'll just get on with my life and I just kind of put it on a shelf right. and I, I was emotional when I first read it and things did click into place and I had a bit of a cry but then I thought right mm. and and then it was when I got elected and one of my researchers said oh, yeah you've got this this condition just press went, yeah anyway there's like a, a foundation and a charity for people I went what loads of people got it and he went, yeah, <laughs> I said, yeah. All right. yeah. and I met up with the dyspraxia foundation and I remember yeah. I was sat in parliament talking to um talking to the charity and I just started crying because everything they were saying I was like oh these, these get it these yeah. really do get it and so ever since then I've worked really closely with them so you didn't feel so isolated um, anymore having met other people with, with experience of it I'm, I'm imagining yeah yeah it just feels lovely it feels like um dead cozy yeah. you know everybody likes that feeling of, of not standing out and not being different and whereas my friends and family never made us feel that way you know they've known us my whole life and have been lush to us other people sometimes do yeah and they didn't they just totally got it and mm. I just felt like spending time with other dyspraxics made us feel really loved and really comfortable and just happy. Because reading about it, um, often when I was reading about it before, it, it often got said in the same sentence along with with autism, along with dyslexia. Is there often sometimes an overlap between those particular conditions? I think so, and it's like um, I think it's I think I've had I've heard some people say it's like on the spectrum a bit. Yeah. So, uh, but I mean, I'm no I'm no scientist or, or medic or expert, so no. I don't know. But yeah, I've, I have heard, and there is some similarities. And I think what's strange is because um, with dyspraxia, it's hard to describe. Yeah. Um, when you when when people do pick up one or two things that 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 it is like the clumsiness or mm -hmm. different things like that they just all assume they've got it as well so loads of MPs said it was what's that again and I reeled <laughs> off some of the symptoms and went oh yeah I think I've got that too so, yeah, it's, it's not it's it's a bit more deeper than that yeah. <laughs> well Emma it's been uh, you said the word lush before it's been lush chatting to you um I, I could go <laughs> on and on but uh I know you have a busy schedule so um, it's quite all right. This is nice. Thank yeah. you for having us. No, and uh, we'd love to. We'd love to yeah. talk to you again at some point. It'd be really good. Um, um, more power to you. More power to your constituents. And, and um, I think they've got a great MP that's looking out for their needs, particularly at this particular, you know, this um, really, really, really desperate time. And we hope that things improve. So, exactly. um, yeah, all that's been left to say is that this is the end of the first segment of episode twenty-two. Um, catch me again in a few seconds for for the second part. But all that's left of me to say is um, thank you very much, Emma Lewell Book. Thank you. Stay thank you. safe, everyone. You as well. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hi everyone, welcome back to Mentally Sounds Life and Lockdown podcast. We're at uh, episode 22, this is the second segment. A uh, big thanks to Emma Lewell Book, the, the MP for South Shields, for providing a very insightful piece for the first segment, and especially along the lines of dyspraxia, which she's very candid about, which is a con condition she lives with. Um, I think it's a condition that not a lot of us know about, so I'm thankful for her to provide uh, her her 
sharing of, of what it was like to growing up with that. So, um, so yes, this is the second segment, and I have another cool guest for the second part. Uh, he's a friend of the show. He's been on the show before. He is Jonah Morris. He's, I believe, is the the head of uh, the partnership head of uh, Sustrans, particularly in the north. Is that right, Jonah? Uh, partnerships manager for North Eastern Cumbria, Sustrans. Uh, cool. Yeah, that's a proper title. So. Yes, that's Jonah Morris. This is his second, uh, he, I think he last appeared um, a couple of years back. And we were exploring, um, and I, I remember sort of feeling, uh, as with my own mental health and through listening to other people, other peers, that, um, um, you know, the importance of, of the environment and nature um, and all the activities that we do outside, especially the likes of walking and um cycling the beneficial to mental well-being so i thought it was really cool to explore that and i think it's been a real big feature of the the lockdown in general as we've touched upon in in previous podcasts and and john is going to um, explore that as some more uh, sustrans it's a it's sort of a charity that promotes um cycling and walking especially um and we've seen a lot of that in, in lockdown so um yeah we're going to explore a bit more of that so Excellent, Jonah. For, uh, thanks for joining us. Um, first of all, how are you doing? And um, if you're, and, and as, as much you can talk about this much as you're more comfortable with, but if you want to sort of exp, uh, explain how lockdown has impacted you personally, you know, you yourself and your family. Yeah, sure. Um, well, kind of like most people in office jobs, I found myself working from home. Yeah. Um, and all the struggles that uh, come with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got two young kids as well. So that first bit of lockdown when schools were closed was mm-hmm. juggling childcare commitments mm-hmm. and working as well. Um, and I, thankfully, I've got a really caring employer in Sustrans who yeah. kind of value their staff. Um, so, yeah, we could have as much time to kind of cover those things as possible, which was, was really good. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because with Sustrans in mind um, and them taking care of, of their, their their workforce, like, like you mentioned, I think that's really cool. But So they did, did they have also an, a sort of a, a criteria or an impl- implementation in place that, that, you know, that it's safer for you guys to work at home, but, 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 but you know, encourage the, the, the message of Sustrans as well. So going out there and, 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 uh, making use of the cycle lanes and and walking um i guess in relation to work productivity as well did you find that the two were entwined uh yeah the two two are very closely uh entwined so in i mean it i i live out of the coast in whitley bay yeah. my office space is in newcastle nice. and kind of as most people know that you know we've had a huge drop in the use of public transport which was yeah. one of my main modes getting to work mm-hmm. um and in place of that uh kind of peak previous peak in public transport during the first bit of lockdown yeah obviously we saw lots of people out and about walking and cycling instead mm-hmm. um particularly whilst they were at home and not in the office yeah so we're trying our best to kind of lock in that behavior that mm-hmm. we saw at the start of lockdown of yeah that, the increase in people walking and cycling mm. um, and not let that just return back to the previous status quo of kind of you know single occupancy cars yeah. and all the um, the health disadvantages and environmental disadvantages that come with that. Yeah. So do you feel right now that we have gone back into those old habits or do you feel that there has been a, a, a commitment amongst people who kind of, you know, you know, went you know abandoned the cars and and, and used more walking and, and cycling do you feel that there has been a commitment amongst a large um, a large part of the population especially up here um i i think there has i mean there's there's danger that it could go back yeah um to car use particularly from public transport use to car use mm-hmm. i mean we saw um in wuhan kind of once they'd um exited their lockdown that the, their previous public transport patronage just transferred, uh, transmitted it straight to car use. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that we have over here that um, you know, the government have invested heavily in walking and cycling infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So you know, we've seen across the region um, cycle lanes go in. So we've got the, the coastal cycle route between Whitley Bay and Timeout. Yeah. 
um, the conversion of Grey Street to be cycle friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, got the pop up cycle lane in front of the RVI. And are those te- uh, sorry to interrupt you, John? But are those temporary measures, or are they kind of have got more of a long term goal in mind to keep them around? Uh, they were in this, all of the the three that I just mentioned were put in as temporary measures. Yeah. So. Um, kind of legally speaking, the measure mm. that was used was COVID-specific yeah. to test it for six months. Yeah. And then the authorities have given uh, been given the opportunity to to either change it whilst it's been in place or kind of make it permanent. And yeah. we were really hoping that authorities can, you know, they, they've won a lot of the battle um, mm-hmm. now. And uh, so to take it out now and, and put it back in later would be, um, yeah. A bit of a mistake, we think, and you know, mm. leave it in and try to get as many people cycling as possible. We know safe, segregated infrastructure where you're um, you're separated from cars and separated from pedestrians if you're a cyclist mm-hmm. is kind of the the best way to make sure that people do take up cycling. Um, you know, we're there to promote cycling generally to those that don't currently cycle. Yeah. Um. So transmitting those um leisure trips that people have been doing mm. into utility trips so yeah. either you know if you're back in the office commuting to the office mm. or um riding the bike down to the shops to, mm. to go get your grocery mm. um you know that's that's the change that we want to see yeah so for a lot of the people you're, you're we're looking at a real good you know, sort of big shift in sort of lifestyle change but one a lifestyle change is going to be enormously beneficial isn't it to their health and mental well-being it is um and you know all of the um statistics about you know prevalence of um covid yeah um dangers in terms of obesity you know mm. active travel can help in terms mm. of all of that um you know getting yourself out and fit yeah um exercising you know it, it stimulates mental health and physical mm. health um so we really want to make sure that um you know we we come out of this as a, a fitter and more healthy population yeah so i guess the uh, for for sustrans and other similar organizations i mean it was like hearing all this kind of thing happening and um people making that shift i mean it, it, i guess it was music to your ears but so what you're what you're saying now is that it's the the next sort of drive amongst your work is 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 to making sure that that get that sort of that shift in in behavior gets locked in that we um we we adhere to you know this commitment so what what sort of challenges are in the way of that i mean are we is it continued sort of campaigning that that uh you know that um lockdown showed us that this is a glimpse of a of a, a healthier future that we we can all adhere to and have stuff like that are there other things in mind or you've got other things in the pipeline that you plan on doing yeah i mean uh, you know we see one benefit of the you know the awful situation that we've been in is an an ability to change the way that we travel Mm -hmm. um i'm sure many people kind of think back to those early days of lockdown and the lack of traffic on the road you know the fact that you could go out into the street and hear birdsong at yeah. any time of day where you know previously there'd be the rumble of traffic in the background mm-hmm. um yeah we want to make sure that um we we change the way that we travel and mm-hmm. the way that we think about travel yeah um to be um you know more caring on the environment more caring on ourselves mm-hmm. um you know a, a return to um car travel yeah you know, people sitting in single occupancy cars, you know, they're, they're at the highest risk of pollution levels mm-hmm. um, and ed- everything that comes with that. Um, so a lot of the stuff that we're doing is about um, making sure that the infrastructure goes in that allows people to make that change yeah. for themselves. Yeah. Um, and, you know, thankfully the government have, have stumped up some money and uh, we're expecting a big announcement in the next couple of weeks for further infrastructure mm-hmm. improvements to come in as well. Obviously yeah. there's the level of infrastructure that's given to cyclists as opposed to those that are given to car drivers is is tiny at the moment so we want to try and tip that balance if at all possible mm-hmm. was it particularly challenging then just on that on that end point jonah about um you know september we saw um you know kids returning to schools and of course the big issue about kids returning is going to school is the school run 
and there's issues about pollution and everything. So was that a particular area that you honed in upon? Uh, yes, and we're trying to promote school streets um, as widely as we can at the moment. So we, we ran a pilot last year of um, across 40 local authorities across the UK, including um, North Tyneside, mm -hmm. where you close the road in front of a particularly primary school or first school kind of yeah. a pick up and drop off point. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the messaging behind it is around child safety, but mm -hmm. um, you're trying to get as many kids and parents to cycle and walk to school as possible. Mm -hmm. We know that safe access to school is a big issue. Um, and if we can try to you know, lock in that positive behavior amongst kids, it yeah. then translates into the parents as well. Sure. Um, and, you know, a, a kid arriving at school having walked or cycled from home mm -hmm. as opposed to being driven in a car, you know, they're, they're more attentive um, in the morning and, um, you know, it, it starts to tackle the issue of childhood obesity, which we know is a, yeah. a big growing problem. Um, excellent. So I remember in, in the beginning of lockdown as well, you know, I think we alluded to it before, was how nature thrived early in lockdown, you know, less traffic, less pollution. Um, I was wondering, in your opinion, was that because there was less th less of our, you know, less traffic around countering that? Or did, did nature really kind of thrive and took advantage of of, sort of less, less humans being about, if you see my meaning? Or could it be a combination of both? I, th I think it was a combination of both. And I think I talked about it last time on the show mm -hmm. that kind of walking and cycling just allows you to look up and take in your surroundings yeah. um, rather than staring at the piece of tarmac in front of your front wheel mm -hmm. and kind of looking at, at nothing else, not looking left or right um, yeah. whilst you're driving. Yeah. Just being able to look in, look up and, and take in your surroundings has um, huge benefits physically and, and particularly mentally. Yeah. Um, and I think during that first period of lockdown and you know, potentially now as we kind of go into um, a kind of further lockdown, um, allowing people to do that and to take the time um, to reconnect with nature yeah. um, is massively important. Mm. Um, my next question, I think, it's sort of a it's sort of a two sides of the coin, sort of double edged sword kind of question. What what I'm what I'm going to say is that because on the one hand, I'm I'm hearing great stories like you know, um, I, I've even heard people saying that they can't they can't buy a bike because it's been so busy that that that, that shops have kind of <laughs> haven't got haven't got well the the, the, the sort of bike that they're after, I guess. I mean, there's always going to be bikes to sell. Uh, yeah. I'd like to think, but so that's great on the one hand, yeah. But I guess on the other hand, um, because Sustrans is a charity, and we we've spoken to a couple of charities during these lockdown podcasts, and the charity sector has been hit hard. So, is there a, is there a double edge? Is there is there a double whammy kind of going on there with with Sustrans? Have you kind of like? seen great on the one hand you know th this shift into sort of greener behavior but on the one hand the charity sector is kind of but i guess maybe um as people are kind of hearing the message from sustrans and other similar organizations you guys might have been all right through this am i right or wrong uh yeah thankfully um we've we've been okay i know the uh, the charity sector has been particularly hard to hit yeah um we're in the fortunate position that yeah we've we're a 40 year old charity and mm. we've been banging in the drum for active travel for those 40 years. And it, yeah. it kind of almost feels like a particularly central government have now woken up and, and listening to what we say. Mm. Um, so there's been a huge period of investment over the last six to nine months. Mm. Um, you know, the government are talking about a two billion pound investment in, mm. in active travel. Mm. Um, and we're starting to see, see that come through now. Um, so, as an organisation, we've been um, we've been cushioned from, from the worst effects of um, you know the um, the fragility in the economy generally that's kind of hit a lot of the uh, voluntary yeah. and charity sector. Um, so, yeah, we're thankful for that. It's good to hear. Um, so, you, you're talking to us from Whitley Bay, and uh, I noticed something you, you said before about the. Um, is it the cycling stretching from? Is it Whitley Bay up to Tynemouth? Is it that that yes. lengthy? Yeah. So, so when lockdown restrictions ease, I spent a lot of my time over in um, North Tyneside, and I did see the 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 sort of the the, the segregated line allowing for cyclists. And 
and a lot of people were using it. It was it was really cool to see. Um, so I guess um, but on, on an overall point of view, um, and this relates to a discussion I had with the pre with the previous guest, um, Emma Lowell Book from South Shields. Are you what are you seeing uh, amongst the, the coastal communities? Because one thing that she'd said, um, that if another lockdown were to happen, that it would devastate some you know parts of the coastal communities because. Of course, in coastal communities, you have a lot of older generations living out there who already, for whatever reason, might feel isolated and stuff like that. You've got you've got local businesses that, that depend on, for example, you know the, the upcoming uh, Christmas trade and so on. Uh, are you quite wary about what you know lockdown has had on on, on particularly in, in your community where you are? Uh, yeah, well, you know, coastal communities generally. Um, their economy is centered around tourism and particularly, sure. you know, that's summer trade sure. was really badly hit. Yeah. Um, although saying that the, um, the segregated cycleway between Whitley Bay and Tynemouth um, has seen a huge increase in the number of people using it. Um, so we've seen, um, you know, triple digit percentages in um, the number of people using it. Um, and generally on any given day, you'll, you'll find people up and down using that instead of, um, you know, they, they made the transition from mm. a car journey to a cycle journey, which is exactly what we want to see. Mm. Um, the other thing about, you know, walking and cycling to a destination as well is you generally spend, tend to spend more money as you're able to stop and, and, you know, buy an ice cream on a nice sunny day. Mm. Um, we know that, um, for for businesses, cyclists um, spend more money over a number of trips. Whereas, so a person going to a shop by car will spend more in a single journey. Um, but those walking and cycling make repeated journeys, and then their cumulative spend is more. So, we know that walking and cycling, and cycling specifically, is good for business. Right. Um, and you know, yeah. we need to do everything that we can to support businesses coming out of um, out of the pandemic. And mm. um, so it actually makes sound economic yeah. sense to invest in, in cycling and walking. Because even even in pre-COVID, I mean, coastal communities in general, I find that the communities generally try, you know, they are more active. And um, because I think there's something about the sea that draws people to come out. And, and I expect that's why a lot of people move out there. It's just the, um, that daily commute, um, that, that's the, the added bonus of having that scenic view just inspires people to go outside doesn't it so with that in mind and, and people become more active using using the, the cycle lanes and buying more bikes and buying more um you know equipment from 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 local sort of uh, businesses which which aids that sort of outgoing culture you're saying that that that, that could be used to help pull the community the community through through this sort of you know recession times and such that there is there is hope there because you know it's 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 generating isn't it it's it's you know people are are using the, the lanes the, the outdoor culture and that that could generate the sort of local economy is what you're saying isn't it uh yeah yeah so i mean there's a there's a few age-old myths around this so you know closing streets to cars will harm the local economy mm. you know evidence shows that in fact pedestrianization generally has positive or neutral effect economically yeah. mm -hmm. um, and you know shop vacancy rates are, are five times higher on streets with higher levels of traffic wow. um, you know the retail turnover in pedestrian areas generally outperforms non-pedestrian areas mm -hmm. um, so we know that that there is a sound economic argument um, and when we when people uh, make the assumption that removing car parking spaces harms the local economy. It actually turns out that the opposite is mm. is true. Um, so retailers, as I, as, as I mentioned, tend to overestimate how many of their customers travel by car yeah. and then hence um, overestimate the number of parking spaces that customers require. Mm. Um, so yeah, we've, we sit on a body of evidence that yeah. kind of makes the, the economic case for mm. um, infrastructure investment. Yeah, and... Uh... And you know that that particular stretch of coastline from Whitley Bay, Tynemouth, uh, Colour Courts, um, it it it's it's got very good uh, 
public transport accesses and generally, um, which which I think adds to um, adds to it all uh, on the point that you make. And so, um, yes, I think yeah, it's it the the future is looking very optimistic, and I can't wait to 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 get out to the coast again. And um, yeah, I mean, I will be brave enough one day to take my bike. Because the West End where I am, it's still a bit precarious, but there are some new lanes popping up. And uh, I did take my bike out early in lockdown, which I haven't done in a long time. But yeah, I have seen old habits sort of creep in, as 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 as, as we said. But um, you know, let's let's do our best to fight against that against that tide. So um, all that's left to me to say, Jonah, is that thanks for joining me on this second segment. Um, do you want to um, tell listeners out there how people can find out more about Sustrans and get in touch and more about what, what you guys are doing and promoting? Yeah, sure. Uh, we've got a, a, a national website, so um, uh, it's www.sustrans.org.uk. Mm-hmm. Um, and for anyone that um, is looking for volunteering opportunities, yeah, um, we, we work with a range of volunteers as well. Mm-hmm. So able to find the page on the website and uh come and help us and get involved cool i mean yeah that's that's an important fact because a lot of the charity sector is quite very dependent on on volunteers aren't they so um a very good call that so um cool thanks a lot jonah um we hope this isn't the last time you you come on Uh, we'll look forward to having you again um and then it's you know let's (laughs) hopefully on the other side of this and hope that you know all that we've um all that we've said comes true and that, you know, we, we've, we've done our best to sort of provide a healthier, optimistic um, outlook for, for people in the region. Awesome. Cheers, Jonah. That's just Jonah from uh, Sustrans Northeast. And um, this has been episode 22 and we'll join us again for episode 23.